Today, we continue our exploration of the moments leading up to the first pages of Dune, beginning after the foundation of the Spacing Guild. Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. I'm Leo. And I'm Abu. And today on the show, we're back. We're back on the path. We're back, baby. We're back, baby. I don't know why I wanted to hear you say that, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> I wanted to say it, so it fits. If it isn't obvious from the uh, the title of this episode, from our verbiage, this is part two. Uh, listen to part one before you proceed. It makes sense. I feel like people understand part one and part two, but it's worth saying. Yeah, just a little helpful reminder. If you jump right into this episode, you're missing about uh, roughly 16,000 years of human <laughs> of human history that we have covered so far. It's basically, we delivered a doctorate in human history <laughs> like twice in one 52-minute episode. Yes, absolutely. And uh, one other quick note, we want to reiterate just another reminder, just like the previous episode, this episode will also be spoiler-free. We are going to be talking about the history of the Dune timeline, but we will stop before the first pages of Dune. So if you haven't read the books, if you know nothing about the films or the TV show, do not worry. We won't be talking about anything that will be spoiled in those pieces of content. We are here to give you context. We are here to give you the history of Dune and to give you a greater appreciation of the world that you might be jumping into or you might be returning to after a while. It's, man, we've had so many conversations offline about what we want to include, what we don't want to include. We we are being very deliberate with what we talk about and what we don't and how we talk about things. So you should be a-okay, super safe. Now, on the last episode, we made it through, as Abu mentioned, 16,000 years uh, before the foundation of the Spacing Guild, which is how we get our uh, calendar denotations of AG uh, after guild and BG before guild. So we are now going to be venturing into the years following this establishment of the Spacing Guild, because as will very quickly become apparent, the Spacing Guild is really one of the pivotal elements of this universe and is kind of involved in almost every decision everyone ever makes, always, forever. <laughs> Right. I mean, they named their calendar in two different eras right. after the Spacing Guild. That's how important the Spacing Guild is to the universe of Dune. And we'll definitely get into that in a bit. But one more quick note I want to hit on about the calendar. If you're worried that uh, now that we've hit the AG time period, the Guild is here, the Imperium has been established. If you're worried that today's episode isn't also going to be a 50-minute dissertation, rest assured, we have 10,000 more years to cover before this episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> Many things can be said about Frank Herbert. Uh, impatience is not Brevity one of is them. not one of them. <laughs> right, right. A hundred percent. Okay. So here we are. It is zero AG. Well, I guess in 337 is when the Great Convention is ratified, right? Like that's when the, the year conventions are adjusted. 
Is yeah. that true? Yeah. That might not be true. When is that? What is? I think you're right. I think around 300 AG when the grid convention, which is something we're going to dive into here, once that is signed, I think you're right. That's when right. okay. probably the BGAG yeah. is sort of figured out and codified. So the first thing we're talking about is this about 1200 year period following basically what is now historically known as zero AG. Um, and the first thing that we've already mentioned a couple of times is the Great Convention. So you can think of the Great Convention as the Magna Carta or even the Constitution of this current universe. So just a refresher on the things that happened a little before and around zero AG, the Imperium was established, the Carino household took the imperial seat of power, the Landstrad, which is sort of the Congress or the Parliament, that is made up of the House's major and the House's minor, is established, the Space and Guilds, like we've mentioned, established, and Chome Company, which is sort of this massive company that manages the markets, sort of like the stock markets, but for intergalactic finance and spice, the spice melange. All of these powers, these sort of pillars of society are established around this time. Right. The Great Convention, then, is their constitution. It is in writing, in lots and lots of writing, <laughs> five five volumes worth of writing, they have basically figured out how they want their society and their government to function. And I did a bunch of research into the convention, and I pulled five things that are mentioned throughout the Dune novels and are hugely relevant to this universe that I think we should just briefly touch on. These are things that the Great Convention codifies and puts into writing, and these are things that will hold in place in this universe and in this imperium for the next 10,000 years until the story of Dune begins. I do want to I do want to throw out here. Imagine a story set in the United States where like freedom of speech isn't an understood element of the law, right? Like mm -hmm. I think going back to what we were saying in the intro, these are things that I kind of wish I knew. Now, now, they're revealed very carefully by Frank Herbert, but that's because Frank Herbert had like a thousand pages for the Dune book. I think knowing these things going into a movie or like Denis Villeneuve's movies or the HBO series is going to be really good, right? Because like even this first one, uh, can I can I say the first one? Yeah, let's jump into it. Oh, boy. Okay. The first one <laughs> is uh, is a regulation of the use of atomic weapons against human beings. So... We mentioned in the first part of this historic look at Dune um, that atomic weapons are still around and are still considered, but they are regulated. They are very heavily, like, it, it, is, it is a breach in the Great Convention kind of rules to use them against people. Right, right. And what I, this I think was really interesting, this clause which regulates the use of atomic weapons against human beings is arguably one of the most famous it's referenced time and time again in all of the dune novels and it dictates how this society runs if they don't want atomics being used against human beings why not just ban all atomics altogether right and that's very intentional the purpose of this great convention isn't necessarily to prohibit things it's to control things right and atomics is one of those another of those things is minor houses. The Great Convention was obviously written, argued, and created by the people in power, by the Imperial House, by the House's Major, and all of the 
the more powerful people in government at that point. Right, right. The people in power did not want the people below them to rise. So banning atomics against human beings is just a way of making sure that they don't lose their own power, but that atomic weapons are still allowed to be used in case, honestly, in case they meet alien life, which they, you know, in the world of Dune thus far, humanity has expanded across tens and thousands of planets, but human life has not come in contact with alien life. And the atomics are sort of a, a backup plan. And that's the reason they aren't prohibited. We need them in case we come across a power much greater than ourselves, but we need to prohibit their use so that the house's minor can't use them as a way to rise and take out like a major house or something. So it's interesting. They're controlled, not prohibited. And that's a theme throughout the Great Convention. I mean, it's also, you know, at this point, this is, again, post-Butlerian Jihad. Although humanity has not encountered alien life, they have now had this experience with thinking machines, right? And yeah, beings that were, albeit maybe created by humans, who are not human beings. And I feel like that verbiage is also very like, if, you know, thinking machines ever came back, what can we do against them? Well, we've got these atomic weapons that we could use against them because they're not human beings. Right. It's a backup plan. Right. Let's talk about part two of this convention. This is so interesting to me. This one's so... This is very interesting. I want to talk to you about this. So part two basically lays out the acceptable means of attaining victory in house-to-house combat. So remember, the houses major are basically the power in this galaxy. The most powerful of those houses being House Carino, which currently holds the Imperial Seat of Power. This second sort of clause or section of the Great Convention basically lays out that there are only two ways that one house may go to war against another house. In something called the War of Assassins, which can be fought using hired killers, or in something called a Conley, which basically means vendetta, where two heads of houses battle each other one-on-one. That's the way you conduct war in this universe according to the Great Convention. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like, in so many ways, we're looking towards the future. And this is happening, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years forward. But these are all very like, you know, we're talking about dukes and barons and the emperor. And we're using this vocabulary that is very, it feels archaic. Right. And this this is one of those things where it's like a... Two heads of houses battling each other is sounds like we're talking about you know Vikings. Yeah, and but this is but this is established and in a lot of ways humanity moving forward and spreading it across the universe was something that caused a certain regression. Right, like this story takes is a sci-fi story that takes place in the future, but a lot of the verbiage is very like Middle Ages. You know, it's it's very much the this idea of empires and fiefdoms and dukes and ladies and concubines a lot of that verbiage continues to pervade this uh this society like you would think a society that's ten thousand years in our future more than ten thousand would have advanced beyond beyond those sort of conventions but they're still around also earth is gone (laughs) no one knows this stuff (laughs) no one's like man concubines you know there's that that famous saying like history is doomed to repeat itself if people don't right if, if people don't study history no one can study history. It's gone. The planet's gone. <laughs> so it's right. like, right. this is this is point in case. We've got dukes 
poisoning each other in assassination attempts with their concubines. Exactly. And this is, you know, thousands of years in the future because Earth ain't no more. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, (laughs) one last thing I want to say about the War of Assassins. This was, again, a very intentional clause in the Great Convention. This was written down for economic reasons. The whole idea of houses who are at war with each other can only use hired killers is so they don't use their own populace because you need the working populace of your planet, of your system to continue working, to keep the economy running. Imagine war at a galactic scale. How many just pure bodies you need to throw at your enemy to win a war. Right. Like we're talking casualties on not a continental scale, not even a planetary scale. We're we're talking casualties that could affect entire systems throughout the galaxy. And that sort of bloodshed is bad for the Imperium. And so there there's a bit of an economic decision here too. It's like we need to limit how much bloodshed is possible. Like we know conflicts will arise. We know there's going to be politicking, backstabbing, assassinations. We need to write down in words in this great convention ways to not prohibit, once again, not to prohibit, but to control the violence. And I I think this just continues to follow that theme of the great convention. We can't stop this thing from happening, but we can control it so it's not so destructive on such a massive scale that it totally breaks the empire. It's also like planet sustainability. If all of the people or if if the, the infrastructure of a planet was ruined... The amount of resources necessary to like repopulate that planet is tremendous. I still get the impression through all the verbiage and through what we hear from characters that going between planets is not like a super casual thing, you know, especially with the Spacing Guild being who they are. You know, if it were pretty common, okay, let's target the farmers of that great house's home city, you could be crippling the planet potentially beyond repair. Right, right. You're totally right. The Spacing Guild. It's mentioned over and over again that their prices are <laughs> enormous. Right. You know, they do their services to transport goods and people from one planet to another do not come cheap. <laughs> so conducting a war on such a massive scale that isn't just between hired killers and assassins could effectively cripple an economy or cripple a house, right. uh, an entire house's assets. So it, this is another way of simply controlling and uh, minimizing the damage that that level of sort of violence and chaos could cause. Something else we've actually touched on already is the third point I pulled from the Great Convention. The convention lays out, I don't know how to say this word, Falfrelux? Falfrelux. Falfrelux. Yeah. Tweet us. Tweet at us. Yes, please tell us how to pronounce words. But the Great Convention lays out this class system, which is really interesting. It lays out who is above who and where in the system you fall and what your place is. It's written in writing here, which is interesting. This is not a governmental decision in the Great Convention. This is telling society how to run and operate and where everyone falls on that ladder. And the whole point, again, of codifying this and putting it in writing and is to make it sort of indisputable. Like, the idea is to, again maintain and control power of who is a house major, who is a house minor, and to limit social mobility. We don't want too many people becoming too powerful too quickly, and we want the people in power to maintain power. Again, because the people in power wrote the convention. So just looking out for themselves. <laughs> I mean, you know, as as it is in the real world, right? 
Number four is huge. Uh, This is the banning of machines, and this is, quote, machines made in the likeness of the human mind, which is, of course, following the events of the Butlerian Jihad, Mm -hmm. right? We had people like MVP Holtzman, rest in peace. Uh, Um, R.I.P. Which which is ridiculous, because that's not even... That's not even what he is, but okay, whatever, fine. Uh, <laughs> the point is, suddenly this is now officially in law that that machines made in the likeness of the human mind are outlawed, are not allowed. Um, as many, many, many years pass, it does appear that there are people naturally breaking the law, but almost everybody, more or less, are like, yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Not a problem. Right. Again, we've got John over here who's so high he can see the future. So high. So high. The first Spacing Guild Master John. John. Uh, so, you know, John's so high, he's doing the job of like a thinking machine. So I guess I'm okay. That's totally fine. People aren't breaking this rule pretty much at all that we see. Right. For the most part, at least open. Yeah. And again, I, I'm I'm being very careful with the way I'm saying this because like, you know, we'll talk about the Tleilax and you kind of get the impression that if there are rules, any rules, they're breaking all of them. <laughs> the Tleilax don't give a fuck. They don't give two <laughs> shits. They are Andrew Ryan in Bioshock 1. They are removed from ethics and morality. They deserve an episode onto themselves. Oh my God. I Yes. No. Yeah, we're going to. The Tleilax. <laughs> the Tleilax Sue, The Tleilaxy. It's going to be fun. Um, so obviously there there is the example of like the Tleilax who it's revealed throughout or, or maybe have some of these thinking machines because they were more or less untouched by the Butlerian Jihad. But that's not that's not most people, you know. Yeah, that's not the norm. Right, like right, right. most of the Imperium, uh, most of the tens of thousands of planets and trillions of humans that have populated them agree to this great convention and don't make machines in the likeness of the human mind anymore. They don't make thinking machines. They don't make artificial intelligence. It's almost a, uh, you can't really call it a regression in technology because I'm sure other ways of adapting are created, but it is a hard stop on things like Google's DeepMind right, right. <laughs> and uh, other other sort of like DeepMind and deep thinking algorithms. Like this is a hard stop. Society's like, yo, we just had a huge jihad. There was bloodshed across the galaxy. No more. In the Great Convention, this is one of the rare few times that something is just outright prohibited. Right. There's no control of machines. There's no control of technology. There's just a ban. Do not make machines in the likeness of the human mind. And I think that's interesting. And it's definitely, like you said, a direct result of the Butlerian Jihad and the bloodshed that the galaxy just witnessed. Well, and keep in mind, like the Butlerian Jihad, what what year was that? Do you remember kind of approximately? It was uh, 100 to 200 BG, I think. Okay. Around that time. So we are now in the 300s AG. So it's been like 400 to 500 years since the Butlerian Jihad. Again, with with like Space Guild member John, who's so high he can see the future. Again, I, I have friends who self-report that they've, they've done that, but it, it's on a whole new level. He is guiding ships into the future, literally. With that in mind, I think one of the reasons why you know, 400 years after the Butlerian Jihad, humanity had found ways, right? Like these kind of spice visions that allow people to see far enough into the future so that they don't necessarily need 
machines for certain things. And you kind of get the impression that the other things in life that artificial intelligence uh, helps with, humanity found ways over those 400 years to deal with it so that by the time of writing this uh, great convention, we had solutions to a lot of the problems that would have occurred if like 600 years ago you had said, hey, humanity, no more of this, right? Like there was that kind of period of, right, you know, people figuring it out. Sometimes when I'm reading the the encyclopedia or when I'm reading in the book, I lose track of like how much time passes between things. It is worth remembering that this is like 400 to 500 years later. Right. Like people have figured out how to plug those holes in society now that artificial intelligence is gone. But here again, in the great convention, it's written down. It's indisputable. Don't make machines that are like artificial intelligence. And for the most part, the galaxy follows that. Wrapping up our discussion on the Great Convention, the fifth thing that I pulled um, is kind of a cop-out. <laughs> I just wrote down, and other various regulations around the economy, five transfers, and uh, proper rankings of concubines within the noble household. So there's just various other societal, economic things that the convention, again, gets in writing so that the galaxy has some order and follows them. And also, so the people who are in power remain in power, which is ultimately the sort of second secondary goal of the great convention the primary goal i assume is create order within the new imperium but the secondary goal as with all things is to keep the people who are in power in power i mean abu you you said that like this is like your cop-out one but you managed to pretty successfully condense what 300 and like 20 315 sections of, <laughs> into of just like, five bullet points <laughs> into five bullet points that's wild i mean th there's this there's this quote right that i think you pulled from one of the books from the encyclopedia yeah from the encyclopedia yeah um do you want to read it can i you can go ahead so this quote is the convention was by far the most comprehensive body of laws in a single document ever written and that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just want to take a moment and applaud your superb uh, abilities to boil that down to something digestible. <laughs> hey, thank you. Skimming has always been a talent of mine. <laughs> the spark notes. <laughs> Ask any of my teachers. <laughs> <laughs> These five things are huge. The atomics, the house-to-house -house combat and war regulations, the class system, the banning of machines and then other various regulations around the economy and society. This is what the Great Convention was for, to regulate and, again, control all of those things in within the new imperium. Right. This is a constitution or a Magna Carta that the society follows for the next right. thousands and thousands of years, which is impressive. So immediately, so that that's 337 AG. Uh, the Great Convention is ratified in 337 AG. Now, the rest of this kind of 1200 year period is actually pretty quiet <laughs> so that's that's like a huge moment yeah um again leading up to this ag era we had like the foundation of some powerful houses they continue to grow blah 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 there, there's a lot that happens that's not really significant um there is a a, a little tiny side note in 388 ag salusa secundus is established as a prison planet and soon after it becomes the training ground for the Sardukar? Sardu Sardukar? Sardukar. Sardukar. Is how I pronounce that and also how the audiobook pronounces it. So that one I know for sure. Don't tweet at me about that. Hey, cool. 
Sardaukar. Sardaukar, yeah. Sardaukar. So soon after, it becomes the training ground for the Sardaukar. Um, now, this is worth mentioning because the Sardaukar and Seleucus Secundus is mentioned in Dune. Um, it's just good to be aware of these things. Um, I definitely found myself when I was reading Dune for the very first time feeling fatigued from all of the new words being thrown at me. Yeah. And I don't know that that was an intentional effect of the book. <laughs> like, I don't think the <laughs> novel was like, I'm going to make him sleepy because I have a lot of vocabulary words. No. So uh, it is good to know Seleucus Secundus is, uh, is established as a prison planet mm -hmm. in 388 AG, and it becomes the training ground for the Sardaukar. Yep. Those are words you should know going into Dune. And uh, we can't say much more than that without getting into spoilers, so we'll just leave it there. But right. those are terms that will come up over and over and over and over again in the Dune Saga. So good to know that those were established this early, 388 AG. Now, moving forward a couple hundred years, let's talk about what happens in 1234 AG, because this is also a pretty monumental moment in the galaxy. Yeah. A guy named Gilbertus Albans... Gilbertus Alban. Alban. <laughs> Alban. Alban. Gil Gilbertus Alban. <laughs> anyway, our boy, our boy Gilbertus here. Gilby. He is. <laughs> Gilby. Oh, Gilby. Let's call him Gilby. Uh, Gilby's cute. Well, Gilby is cute. Yes. So, so Gilby <laughs> is a famous <laughs> philosopher and logician. Imagine, if you will. I love the. I love the way the uh, encyclopedia explained this section. Imagine, if you will, Gilby is uh, just spending some leisure time one spring morning in 1231. He's reading about the Butlerian Jihad. He's reading about his ancient history at this point. Remember, that Jihad at this point happened over a thousand years ago. Right. He's reading about it. And he conceives of a program to create something called the Order of Mentats. And that's huge. Yeah. What are Mentats, Leo? Man, Mentats are basically human computers. Like, well, like, I was going to say thinking machines. No, no, no. No, no, no. Those aren't allowed. Can't do that. Convention bans it. <laughs> uh, article number four, or whatever number. Uh, <laughs> no, the order... Mentats are basically humans trained from a very young age just to be able to calculate things at light speed. Human cognition pushed to the utter limits for rational, logical thought and computation. And... It's really interesting. Man, if you have read Dune already, definitely only if you've read Dune already and you know everything that happens, the encyclopedia, I cannot recommend enough. It is so, so cool. And this section on the Order of Mentats in the encyclopedia is... Oh, it's so interesting. I was, I texted Abu. I was reading the encyclopedia uh, as one does. And I was like, I might just read this from now on. Like, this might be <laughs> the thing I read from now on in life. Uh, so anytime someone asks me what kind of things I'm reading, I just start rattling off things from the Encyclopedia <laughs> of Dune. Uh, it's so cool. Um, but yeah, no, the Order of Mentats. Mentats are humans who are basically like machines they are like artificial intelligence you give them data yeah and they use that data to literally compute uh results and there were different like classifications as he was developing the order of mentats like very early on it was just learning the logic and being reactive there was some loyalty training and some like to establish hierarchical power within the order mm -hmm. but then he got to these like 
hypothesists who could basically reason their way to the future knowing people. They knew so much about people that they could say, I know for a fact or with utter certainty that this is going to happen. And it would. Right. Like it just straight up would. The the way it's described in the novels is like Mentats will take a bunch of data points. Right. And the word computation comes up all the time, which is so interesting considering this is a world where computers effectively are banned. Right, right. These people, these mentads trained by Gilby's very secret methods are basically modern computers. They're walking, talking computers and they take all of these different data points. They crunch the numbers, they crunch all the possibilities and run it through their, you know, sort of internal whatever algorithms. And they, then they come up with an answer to whatever question they might be pondering. And I think it's really interesting. It's what what I like to compare this to is that horrible movie Limitless. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Where was, the guy does the drugs and then it, it like so bad. <laughs> it like unlocks part of his mind. You know, <laughs> it stars Rocket, the raccoon from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Right, <laughs> right. I forget his name. The guy who plays his Rocket Raccoon. Whatever his name is. <laughs> yes, we are clearly not Mentats. <laughs> <laughs> Super famous actor. Uh, Look. What's his name? No, we're not Mentats. And also, we know Dune lore. We don't know real Earth lore, okay? It's so true. It's true. <laughs> our allegiance lies with Gilby, not with whoever that actor is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's Bradley Cooper. It's Bradley, it's Bradley Cooper. Cooper. Okay, so that Bradley Cooper movie, Limitless, <laughs> where he does the drug, he eats the pill, it unlocks his mind. And basically, it's based off of that myth that humans only use 10% of their mind and there's like 90% dormant. Right. That's a myth. Don't believe that if you see it. But right. that is how I sort of imagine Mentats, honestly. It's like Gilby's training, his very rigorous training that starts very early, like you mentioned, unlocks the logical computational part of these people's minds and creates very useful human computers who can do a lot of the things that humanity needed artificial intelligence to do or they needed computers to do. And Gilby's organization as it becomes clear to the rest of the empire, to Chome Company, to the imperial seat of power, to the great houses, as it becomes clear to them how useful Mentats are, this order of Mentats becomes extremely wealthy and begins to play their part on the political stage. Now houses want Mentats to work for them. Chome Company wants Mentats to come and manage a financial market on a galactic scale, which you would need computers to do. So... These Mentats become huge players on the galactic stage, and it's all thanks to our boy Gilby. It is it is worth mentioning. There are other organizations that try to do the same thing, mm-hmm. but he's really, for a very, very long time, the only one who really gets it and really gets it right and is churning out these capable kind of human computers. And just imagine, without even knowing anything about Dune, imagine competing houses of power right and then someone gets a macbook that's a great way of thinking about it yeah it's it's a wild benefit the the other thing that i wanted to mention that i thought was so cool about this that i didn't even really put into i didn't think to put it into words until i was looking through the encyclopedia one of the focuses of mentats is general knowledge is being a generalist Mm. because specialists people who know a ton about one thing become more and more biased to see things in a, in a very specific vocabulary. 
versus a generalist who understands interlocking systems and understands tons of different stuff, right? Like, he doesn't want someone who can name every single Pokemon. He wants someone who (laughs) knows the general rules of Pokemon and can name, like, 70 of them because what he needs them to do is calculate what a Pokemon fan is going to do when confronted by a Digimon fan, right? Right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that doesn't happen in Dune. That does not happen in Dune. <laughs> Pokemon and Digimon have been wiped out thanks to the Earth getting hit by an asteroid. So, for the record, totally hypothetical example, but I think you put it in a really great way. Like, Mentats have become an extremely powerful weapon for the houses, for all of the pillars of the empire that we talked about before the guild, Chome Company, the Lance Rod. Everyone wants their hands on Mentats now. There's much more to say here about so much, Mentats. Yeah. There's so much history. There's a moment where they actually have to leave their home planet because they can't cover their initial costs. And they they create a contract with the Tleilax, which, again, they keep coming up. And they move their operations to the Tleilax home planet. And then the Tleilax... Fucking rule breakers. The rule breakers, right. And then the Tleilax are like, oh, wait, Gilby has a monopoly on Mentat creation. Why can't we try to do it? So yeah. there's a lot more Mentat history and information about the mentat lore that we could get into but we actually want to save that for a future mentat episode which we know for certain we're going to do so for now what's important to know when it comes to the timeline is that mentats are created around 1234 ag in the timeline of dune and uh, they become extremely critical to how the empire runs at large and i'll say this really kind of cryptically because Again, we don't want to get into spoilers or anything, but I know people who know a lot about Dune will maybe bristle at things that we might say. Uh, Very carefully, I'll say, Mentats had problems as well. Like, there were issues with the Mentat training. It's not super important. We, I don't, I don't mean to come off as like Mentats are the end all great solution to every problem. Yes. They, they had their limitations. And that's also why when we talk about the Bene Gesserit a little bit later, that's why you'll see that like Duke, like dukedoms or, or, um, uh, these great houses don't rely solely on Mentats. Like they are one tool in an arsenal of weapons or, or an arsenal of, capabilities or useful people absolutely no that's a great caveat i'm glad you brought that up they are not perfect impartial logical machines they're still people they've just tapped into that bradley cooper part of their brain (laughs) (laughs) got a got a galaxy full of rocket raccoons (laughs) (laughs) so let's move forward about 1500 years or so and talk about what happens in 2800 ag another big group of people enter the galactic stage and we need to talk about them. So in 2800 AG, a guy named Charles Baron Mikarol? M- Mikarol? M- whatever. Mikarol? Something. Mikarol? Yeah, something. Something. Charles. Charlie. Char- Charlie. He's the planetary governor of Terra. And Charlie is tasked with sending, uh, to send two million of his citizens to a colony that the Imperial seat wants to start. So he decides, I'm going to send two million of these Zen Sunni to the planet Poritrin is what it's called, this new colony that the Imperial Power wants to uh, basically start. And these Zensuni are really interesting. I mean, in, in a nutshell, the Zensuni people are a nomadic people who believe that they have no allegiance to any secular government. Right. So for Charles, this is actually a win-win. Charlie here is like, okay, the emperor just told me I got to move two million of my people. 
these people aren't necessarily going to be happy to leave Earth, to leave Terra. How about I just get rid of these sort of troublesome nomadic people who already don't think they owe any allegiance to me? Two birds, one stone. So he takes these Zensuni and he banishes them off Terra, two million of them, and they go to Poritrin. And this event kicks off something known as the Zensuni Migration, yeah. which is extremely important in the world of Dune. And also very seldom directly talked about. <laughs> like, yes, that's a theme you'll notice throughout Dune. <laughs> the Zensuni and the Zensuni Migration is still one of those topics that feels ambiguous because it, it, it really is a long story that spans thousands and thousands of years and branches, right? Like it's not it's not this one linear story. This is like the roots. This Zinsuni migration is like the the trunk of this vast tree. And every single little leaf on this tree is a massively important thing that happens in the Dune universe. Yeah. The Zensuni definitely deserve their own probably spoiler heavy episode. Um yeah, and it's it's really interesting. I don't think we have time to get into the, their culture or the exact steps of the migration, and we don't necessarily want to get into that here anyway because of spoiler territory. But just, again, just an important thing to know for the timeline and the context of the Dune universe, around 2800 AG is when our boy Charlie, who's the governor of Terra, sends these two million Zensuni off-planet to a colony, and this kicks off their migration and over the next couple thousands of years, these Zensuni will be forced from planet to planet to planet to planet uh, until they finally settle. So um, we will revisit them in just a little bit here. But let's let's actually move forward a bit and talk about the next couple thousand years sure. uh, up until around the uh, 6600 AG mark. Yeah. So this is when in about 1440 is when we first start getting our... That you know, we we mentioned at the when we were talking about the Great Convention, uh, we were talking about this this sort of rule saying an acceptable means of attaining victory in house to house combat is a war of assassins. Now, in 1440, we get a war of assassins, yay! Uh, where kind of great houses are sending assassins against one another mm -hmm. as kind of that new dominant form of large-scale warfare um, this includes like poisons small machines other types of assassination and the these methods of assassination are so commonly referenced mm -hmm. in dune that it's it's just really good to know that at in about 1440 is when this first war of assassins happens this sets the stage for seven thousand years of people in these great houses being constantly on guard right for poison tiny little machines you know different different th ways of being assassinated yeah 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 yeah. like before uh, a house major sits down for a meal they'll have poison snoopers and it's they like every meal it's basically like some sort of technology it's not even like describes that well in dune it just says the <laughs> poison really. snooper yeah. said this food's not poisoned uh, so i don't know if it's like a scanner or like a special spoon <laughs> i don't know i imagine like a dr seuss character like <laughs> call in the poison snooper and he like tumbles in and he's like hey there's poison in that yeah, yeah. but i'm actually really <laughs> glad you brought this up because you're totally right this war of assassins at least this first one in the 1400s sets the stage for like this constant fear if you're part of a house major or even a house minor if you're part of any level of the political stage in the world of dune you better be watching your back right because you don't yeah. know when you're going to get poisoned you don't know when you're going to get stabbed in the back or betrayed or assassinated 
Like it creates this aura of fear that pervades the world of Dune. And it, it's part of many of these people's lives. Like in the world of the Dune novels, we follow characters who are huge political players and they're always on guard. What's interesting is at one point, I'll be very vague here, so this isn't a spoiler, but at one point, one character offers another character wine. And this character waits for the person who offered wine to take a sip first, just to make sure that they're not being poisoned. And that's like a normal interaction right, in this right. world because you've got to be careful. <laughs> now, this is made a little bit worse by something. This is in the grand scale of things. This is not a huge event, but it, it's kind of fun. In 5122, we get our first face dancers. Now, face dancers are kind of, you know, they're, they're named in a way that you can maybe guess what they can do. But they first appear as entertainers from Tleilax and... They are worth not noting as this kind of continues and reinforces this, first of all, this pattern of humans who learn to do amazing things because mm -hmm. these face dancers can basically mimic. They learned how to control every muscle in their face perfectly so and, and vocal control, and they would work as almost jesters. But when you combine this with this emerging thousands of years of assassins, you get some complicated situations. So... In general, and again, always coming from Tleilax, those goofballs. Um, those Tleilax bastards. Those Tleilax bastards. Th this <laughs> this continues, uh, but, but more so this continues this pattern of people all over the galaxy are experimenting, are learning, are studying, are right. in the absence of artificial intelligence and thinking machines. We have humans biologically diversifying and specializing and over thousands of years like breeding to be able to do that even better you know yeah and i think the a word that really encapsulates that is evolving right this right. is the next step of human evolution like mentats are a branch of human evolution people who have trained to tap into the extremely logistical part of their minds these face dancers from the tleilax in addition to like you said their training are actually bred in this way too i think you mentioned this their genes are modified, the way they're bred, the way they're raised is to give them this power. And this is sort of the sci-fi fantasy aspect of it. But these face dancers can effectively change the way they look and change their appearance and their voice and their mannerisms. Uh, so they're shapeshifters, basically. Right, 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 right. But you, at the same time, they're human. They're uh, They're just such an evolved branch of humanity that's been sort of tampered with and modified. Right. That, you know, to... People like you and I, Leo, they would probably be unrecognizable. And if one of them shape shifted in front of me, I'd shit my pants. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when we meet our first face dancer, they are basically shape shifters. Uh, exactly. But the first ones were basically just people who could do really great impressions, right? And we've seen right, comedians right. like Jim Carrey is is like, <laughs> Jim Carrey's a face dancer. <laughs> That's just putting it out there. He's a Tleilax face dancer. Uh, yeah, we're on to you, Jim. We're we are on to you, Jim. <laughs> if that is your real name, Tleilax Gola. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're totally right. It's really interesting to think that because humanity can no longer rely on technology and computers, they're filling the gaps with biology, right, with right. biological tampering and biological evolution, and they're relying more on humans doing these incredible things rather than computers, artificial intelligence, and technology doing these incredible things. So speaking of incredible things that humans can do, 
<laughs> Let's talk about what happens between 6600 AG and 7193 AG because yeah. a couple of formative things happen here and we're going to revisit the Zensuni. One of the one of the biggest events. So at this point the Zensuni have been migrating from planet to planet for a couple thousand years and the Zensuni have these sort of religious leaders called Sayadinas. Right. And on one of the planets that the Zensuni have ended up on, a Sayadina discovers a plant that she consumes and finds out that this plant gives her the ability to communicate with, quote, the voices within, which is another way of saying her past lives. So her genetic memory, basically. She can communicate and has all the memories of all of her ancestors. And again, all of her ancestors, millions and millions of lives. It's this this ability to communicate with the voices within very quickly is a very, very powerful discovery. Yes. And also because she is referred to as the first wild reverend mother. And the reverend mothers are part of this order, the Bene Gesserit. And we are definitely 138.9% mm-hmm. going to do an episode on the Bene Gesserit. Because... Oh, I can't wait. They deserve... Probably two episodes, actually. <laughs> maybe one that's like less spoilery and one that's like super spoilery. And then maybe a third where we just talk about our feelings because there's a lot yeah, of feelings. <laughs> a lot of feelings. But yeah, the, the Zensuni basically adopt this term, Reverend Mothers, from the Bene Gesserit. And uh, there's a reason for that. It's a bit spoilery, I think, so I'm going to avoid mentioning it. But basically, the Zensuni totally. are like, hey... Wow, a Saidina that consumes this plant and can now communicate with all of her past lives, we're going to call you our reverend mothers. And I think what's interesting, speaking of, again, depending on biological means to do things that were done technologically, think about what this does for recorded history. These reverend mothers who can now speak with their entire genetic history can tell these Zensuni people, a people that have been displaced from one planet to another, to another, to another, exactly what their history is the history that they continue to lose when they are forced to leave one planet they lose all all their culture their history right every you know every sort of like written piece of text that they can't like literally carry in their backpacks with them to this next planet they lose that but now with these reverend mothers they know exactly what their history is and that that's incredible to think what it does for like historical context for this for these people yeah and and again there is this is not unfamiliar to us right like this sounds like the romani exactly or you know we're talking about like persecuted religious groups being forced to flee from place to place yeah and the way that they end up carrying their culture with them is Is oral traditions and storytelling yeah exactly um and this is just the uh, space drug fueled super version of that super yeah. version of that. <laughs> dune welcome to dune yeah again the zen Sunni people probably deserve their own episode but i just love the whole idea of the zen Sunni migration yeah. just the religious context and religion pervades the world of dune it is like deeply seated and extremely important to the story that frank herbert is telling but the zen Sunni people just look at their name, right? Zen and Sunni. Zen from Buddhism and Sunni is a sect of Islam, right? Like the name itself, Zen Sunni, tells you those sort of like religious underpinnings of these people. And again, right. this idea of people 
who are persecuted and flee from place to place to place until they finally find the quote-unquote promised land, until they finally find a planet they can call their own, that they cannot be pushed away from, which is something they eventually do in a deal that they strike with the Spacing Guild. They're like, yo, Spacing Guild, we have saved up enough money to pay for passage. Can you move all our people to a planet so that we stop getting kicked off all these other Imperial planets? That's ultimately what they end up doing. It's it's really interesting to think of the religious context surrounding the Zen Sunni. Absolutely. Yeah. So now we're jumping another 2,000 years forward. We're getting there. We're almost there, I promise. And <laughs> you can tell we're almost there because the Atreides family is awarded. In 8,711 AG, the Atreides family is awarded the Dukedom of Caladan. Every word written about Caladan is just how great it is. It's just like... Paradise. Yeah. It just... that, Like, simply put, right? Like, every time Frank Herbert writes about Caladan, he's talking about streams and lush forests of green and waterfalls and waterfalls palaces yeah, like and it's kingdom, very yeah. much described as a paradise and it's in, like santa monica <laughs> what <laughs> sorry i'm from california it's really nice <laughs> i'll take your word for it just like santa monica caledon <laughs> equals santa monica or like hawaii like no one no one's like oh hawaii is shitty you know like it's just it, everybody gushes about Kaladin. It's a beautiful planet. Yes. And, and the Atreides family is now officially awarded the Dukedom of Kaladin. Right. Which is very cool to think about. And what's interesting here, remember the timeline. Again, you mentioned earlier, it's easy to forget how long the years are in some of these events. Right. They're given this Dukedom in 8711 AG. The story of Dune takes place in the 10,000s AG. Right. And this isn't a spoiler. They literally say this on like the first page of the Dune book, but Paul, our main character, Paul Atreides, and his family, his mother and father, are leaving Kaladin. The Atreides family is leaving Kaladin at the start of Dune in like the very first page. They're leaving a home, an ancestral home, that their family has occupied for 2,000 years. That, <sighs> that makes... And again... We're trying to give you greater context so you can understand the world of Dune if you haven't read it yet. Right. The first time I read Dune, I was like, why is Paul just like so bummed out to leave Kaladin, man? Like he's going <laughs> on an adventure. Like, why is he being such a baby about this? And now that I looked at the encyclopedia and I know their family has been on Kaladin, this paradise planet for 2000 years. Like, yeah, I get it now. I get it. Yeah, there is a lot to not say. <laughs> in order to protect people's first experience of Dune. So we won't. Um, <laughs> the Atreides family was founded before the shift from BG to AG. Right. So the Atreides family is now 8,000 years old. Wild. The The scale and the scope of these times is not insignificant because no. it affects really directly how characters act about certain things, right? Like knowing that assassination has been on the mind... You know, initially, I'm sure, with the first War of Assassins, all of the Dukes and all of the Minor Houses are constantly, viscerally afraid. But by the time, you know, Duke Leto is born, and by the time we meet Paul, this is no longer an active fear. It is just a constant awareness. Right. It's just constant... part of being a Duke, part of playing politics in this universe. Right. Right. Crazy to yeah. think about. It's part of the fabric of reality. Yeah. It's, no, it's like, yeah, we need air to breathe, and yeah, we need to bring in the like goofy snooper to like snoop our food so that we don't get poisoned again i picture it as a dr seuss character 
It's definitely just like a scanner. Or even because I did. Okay, I did think that it was like a handheld thing. Contra- I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> so let's actually move forward. Good. To those 2000 years and talk about what happens in 10,140 AG. Duke Leto, the first of his name, is born. <laughs> the first of his name. And he's, uh, Duke Leto is going to be played by Oscar Isaac in the movie. Yes. I'm sure anyone who's interested in Dune or is listening to this podcast yes. has seen the photo. So good. And uh, I like to imagine in my sort of head canon of Dune, which has no place in any sort of actual yeah. canon, but yeah. I like to imagine Leto was just born with that beard. <laughs> It's just a, a little baby with a with a big, full, bushy beard, beautiful just beard. Just a luscious beard. And like that intense hawk-like nose and just so stern, so lovely, so stern. So stern. I mean, Oscar Isaac might have been born with a beard, too. We don't know. Just talking about him is making my beard grow <laughs> faster. So that's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, I can feel it. <laughs> so with the birth of Duke Leto, uh, first of his name, uh, we get... Again, we are now at 10,140 AG. We are actually getting much closer to the beginning of the book. This is a character who you'll meet very early on in Dune. Right. So great. Awesome. We're almost there. Um, so he's born with his beard. That's confirmed. And Confirmed. <laughs> confirmed. And again, worth mentioning, this is when most of Dune takes place. And also, this is the beginning of like meeting some characters that you're going to be meeting on the first pages, including... Ba, 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 ba. Lady Jessica. Woo! Okay. She was born. Lady Jessica. Lady Jessica. Uh, born in 10,154 AG is when Lady Jessica is born. Yes. And Lady Jessica is Paul's mother and Duke Leto's partner. Uh, and if you're doing the quick math here, there's a 14 year age difference between the Duke and the lady. No judgment. No. Nope. Love is nope. love is love is love. Like, just like uh, Lady Manuel Miranda said. But again, just some greater context for who they are and what their relationship is. Because again, power dynamics are important in the world of Dune, in the world of politics. And age is important to remember here as well. Age is another way that uh, power can be measured. Uh, it is also worth mentioning, Lady Jessica is part of the Order of the Bene Gesserit. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. again, we will absolutely be doing an episode entirely on that Um but yes, uh, it, it it is significant to mention and good to keep in mind. That's all I'll say. Right. Can't say any more. Zip. <laughs> Just got to wait for that first Denis Villeneuve movie and you'll understand maybe more things. Yes. Hopefully we are helping you understand more of it, too. So I'm going to jump through these next couple of time jumps. Again, most of the story of Dune, like you said, takes place in the early tens of thousands A.G., so the time jumps here are going to get smaller and smaller, but we do have some other significant characters who enter the stage, or at least enter the limelight. In 10,155 to 10,165 AG, a guy named Gurney Halleck is enslaved by House Harkonnen for a decade on their homeworld of Getty Prime. This enslavement creates a very deep-seated hatred of the Harkonnens in Gurney, yeah. and it obviously, it's extremely traumatic for him, and this is something that will affect him for the rest of his life and will dictate a lot of his character. But again, can't get into too much spoilery stuff there. He's a he's a character that you will meet in the world of Dune in the novels and in the movies as well. So it's just significant to know that around 10,155 is when Gurney was enslaved for 10 years on the Harkonnen homeworld. Also very carefully worded 
the Harkonnens and the Atreides do not love each other. That's just worth knowing. <laughs> yes. I, I think it c- does not hurt to know that the Harkonnens and the Atreides uh, do not care for each other. Um, yeah. Anyway, 10,158 AG, Duncan, Idaho is born, which for the ladies and boys keeping track is going to be uh, played by uh, the the great and talented, what the fuck's his name? Uh, Jason Momoa. <laughs> uh, so if you like a uh, tall glass of beautiful yeah. water, uh, Duncan, Idaho enters the stage gorgeously in uh, 10,158. Yeah. And honestly, Leo, Duncan, Idaho is born is the only bullet point I have written down here because we basically can't say anything about him without getting into spoilers. <laughs> He's So I think we'll leave it there for now. <laughs> it, it's a character name that is hard to not remember, and he's a character who it's worth remembering. So glad that that works out. Yeah. He's born, and uh, he's played by Jason Momo in the movie. That's all you need to know. Good to know. Next up, we have... <laughs> And this is this like deserves a massive drum roll, which I'm not going to add because that's a lot of editing. <laughs> uh, 10,175 AG. Abu, what happens? Paul Atreides is born. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Our main character, our protagonist. Timothy Chalamet. Tish, Timothy Chalamet is born. Yes, this is this is a crucial point in the universe. Of course, Paul Atreides is born. And this is also... Basically where we have to stop today's discussion because... Yeah, kind of, yeah. This is effectively not this moment where he's born, of course. The story picks up where Paul is a teenager, like you mentioned earlier. He's like 15-ish, 16-ish. Yeah. yeah. But basically anything we say beyond this point would move into the actual first novel of Dune. But that covers 10,000 years from the start of the Spacing Guild from 0 AG to 10,175 AG when Paul Atreides is born and the story of Dune effectively kicks off. It is Whew. shocking to have just done that. <laughs> just all like, I mean, just in concept, like I'm tired. Yeah, I've aged. If you're like, haven't we all? My beard is twice as long as it was <laughs> an hour ago. I haven't seen my family in twenty years. And keep your snooper handy. You know. Yes. Oh my gosh! Always keep your snooper handy. <laughs> just keep your snooper. You handy. never know who's going to poison you. That's like the number one thing I learned from Dune. Yeah. The the Tleilaks break every rule. Keep your snooper handy. And uh, fucking John, man. Just... John, dude. So high. So high. (laughs) Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.